Welcome back to Storytime. My name is Jessica Chung, and today we are reading Gods of Jade and Shadow by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Chapter 1 Some people are born under a lucky star, while others have their misfortune telegraphed by the position of the planets. Cassopia Tun, named after a constellation, was born under the most rotten star imaginable in the firmament. She was 18, penniless, and had grown up in Yucamil, a drab town where mule-drawn railcars stopped twice a week, and the sun scorched out dreams. She was reasonable enough to recognize that many other young women lived in equally drab, equally small towns. However, she doubted that many other young women had to endure the living hell that was her daily life in Grandfather Cirillo Leyva's house. Cirillo was a bitter man, with more poison in his shriveled body than was in the stinger of a white scorpion. Cassopia tended to him. She served his meals, ironed his clothes, and combed his sparse hair. When the old brute, who still had enough strength to beat her over the head with his cane when it pleased him, was not yelling for his grandchild to fetch him a glass of water or his slippers, her aunts and cousins were telling Cassopia to do the laundry, scrub the floors, and dust the living room. Do as they ask. We wouldn't want them to say we are spongers, Cassopia's mother told her. Cassopia swallowed her angry reply because it made no sense to discuss her mistreatment with mother, whose solution to every problem was to pray to God. Cassopia, who had prayed at the age of ten for her cousin Martin to go off and live in another town far from her, understood by now that God, if he existed, did not give a damn about her. What had God done for Cassopia, aside from taking her father from her, that quiet, patient clerk with a love for poetry, a fascination with Mayan and Greek mythology, a knack for bedtime stories, a man whose heart gave up one morning like a poorly wound clock. His death sent Cassopia and her mother packing back to grandfather's house. Mother's family had been charitable, if one's definition of charity is that they were put immediately to work while their idle relatives twiddled their thumbs. Had Cassopia possessed her father's pronounced romantic leanings, perhaps she might have seen herself as a Cinderella-like figure. But although she treasured his old books, the skeletal remains of his collection, especially the sonnets by Corveiro, wells the sentiment for a young heart. She had decided it would be nonsense to configure herself into a tragic heroine. Instead, she chose to focus on more pragmatic issues, namely that her horrible grandfather, despite his constant yelling, had promised that upon his passing, Cassopia would be the beneficiary of a modest sum of money, enough that it might allow her to move to Merida. The atlas showed her the distance from the town to the city. She measured it with the tips of her fingers. One day. In the meantime, Cassopia lived in Cirillo's house. She rose early and committed to her chores, tight-lipped like a soldier on a campaign. That afternoon, she had been entrusted with the scrubbing of the hallway floor. She did not mind, because it allowed her to keep abreast of her grandfather's condition. Cirillo was doing poorly. They did not think he would make it past the autumn. The doctor had come to pay him a visit and was talking to her aunts. Their voices drifted into the hall from a nearby living room. The clinking of dainty china cups, punctuating one word here and another there. Cassopia moved her brush against the red tiles, attempting to follow the conversation, expecting to be informed of anything that went on in this house in any other way was ridiculous. 
They never bothered to talk to her except to bark orders. Until two shiny boots stopped in front of her bucket. She did not have to look up to know it was Martin. She recognized his shoes. Martin was a youthful copy of their grandfather. He was square-shouldered, robust, with thick, strong hands that delivered a massive blow. She delighted in thinking that when he grew old, he would also become an ugly, liver-spotted wretch without teeth, like Cyrilla. There you are. My mother is going crazy looking for you, he said. He looked away as he spoke. What is it? she asked, resting her hands against her skirt. She says you are to go to the butcher. The silly codger demands a good cut of beef for supper. While you're out, get me my cigarettes. Cassopia stood up. I'll go change. Cassopia wore no shoes and no stockings and a frayed brown skirt. Her mother emphasized neatness in person and in dress. Cassopia didn't believe there was much point in fretting about the hem of her clothes when she was waxing floors or dusting rooms. Still, she must don a clean skirt if she was heading out. Change? Why? It'll be a waste of time. Go right away. Martin, I can't go out like... Go as you are, I said, he replied. Cassopia eyed Martin and considered defying him, but she was practical. If she insisted on changing, then Martin would give her a good smack, and she would accomplish nothing except wasting her time. Sometimes, Martin could be reasoned with, or at least tricked into changing his mind. But she could tell by his caloric expression that he'd had a row with someone and was taking it out on her. Fine, she said. He looked disappointed. He wanted a scuffle. She smiled when he handed her the money she needed to run the errand. He looked so off-put by the smile. She thought for a moment he was going to slap her for no reason. Cassopia left the house in her dirty skirt, without even bothering to wrap a shawl around her head. In 1922, Governor Felipe Carrello Porto had said women could now vote, but by 1924 he'd faced a firing squad, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen to governors who go around delivering speeches in Mayan and then don't align themselves with the correct people in power, and they'd revoked that privilege. Not that this ever mattered in Yucamel. It was 1927, but it might as well have been 1807. The revolution passed through it, yet it remained what it had been, a town with nothing of note except for a modest Saskab quarry. The white powder shoveled out was used for dirt roads. Oh, there had been a Hennekin plantation nearby once upon a time, but she knew little about it. Her grandfather was no handsome daro, his money, as far as Cassopia could tell, came from the buildings he owned in Merida. He also muttered about gold, although that was likely more talk than anything else. So while women in other parts of the world cut their hair daringly short and danced the Charleston, Yukamil was the kind of place where Cassopia might be chitted if she walked around town without the shawl wrapping her head. The country was supposed to be a secularist after the revolution something that sounded fine when it was printed as a decree, but was harder to enforce once push came to shove. Cristero rebellions bubbled down the center of Mexico when the government tried to restrict religious activity. That February, in Jalesco and Guanarto, all priests had been detained for inciting people to rise against the anti-Catholic measures promoted by the president. Yet, you, yet Yucatan, 
was tolerant of the Cristeros, and it had not flamed up like other states. Yucatan had always been a world apart, an island. Even if the Atlas assured Cassopia she lived on a verdant peninsula, no wonder in lazy Yucanil everyone held on to the old ways. No wonder either that or the priest grew more overzealous, intent on preserving morality and the Catholic faith. He eyed every woman in town with suspicion. Each diminutive infraction to decency and virtue was catalogued. Women were meant to bear the brunt of inquiries because they descended from Eve who had been weak and sinned, eating from the juicy, forbidden apple. If the priest saw Cassopia, he would drag her back to her house. But if he did, what of it? It was not as if the priest would strike her any harder than Martin would, and her stupid cousin had given her no chance to tidy herself. Cassopia slowly walked to the town square, which was dominated by the church. She must follow Martin's orders, but she would take her time doing so. She glanced at the businesses bunched under the square's high arcades. They had a druggist, a haberdasher, a physician. She realized this was more than other towns could claim, and still she couldn't help but feel dissatisfied. Her father had been from Merida and had whisked her mother off to the city where Cassopia was born. She thought she belonged there, or anywhere else for that matter. Her hands were hard and ugly from beating the laundry against the stone lavardo, but her mind had the worst of it. She yearned for a sliver of freedom, somewhere far from the bothersome grandfather and impertinent coterie of relatives. There would be sleek automobiles if she wished to drive one, daring pretty dresses, which she'd spotted in newspapers, dances, the faster the better and a view of the Pacific Sea at night. She knew it courtesy of the stolen postcard. She had cut out photos of all these items and placed them under her pillow. And when she dreamed, she dreamed of night swimming, of dresses with sequins, and the clear, starlit sky. Sometimes she pictured a handsome man who might partner with her for those dances, an amorphous creation glued together by her subconscious using the pictures of movie stars that appeared between the print ads for soap and bobby pins, and which she'd also preserved, safe at the bottom of the cookie tin that contained every precious item she owned. Despite this, she did not engage in the gleeful whispering and giggling of her female cousins who spoke their dreams. She kept her mouth tightly shut. The pictures were in the tin. Cassopia purchased the item she needed and began circling back home, her steps laden. She stared at Grandfather's house, the best house in town, painted yellow with elaborate wrought iron grills at the windows. Grandfather's home was as pretty as El Principal ever was, he claimed. That had been the famous hacienda nearby. A huge building where dozens and dozens of poor workers had toiled in misery for decades before the revolution freed them and sent the old owners fleeing abroad, though it didn't improve the workers' conditions. A big house as fancy as one could get, filled with the same valuables a hensendado might have. This was Cirilo Leva's house. With his money, the old man could have kept his family in Merida. 
but Cassiopa suspected he longed to return to Yukono so he could parade his wealth before the people he'd grown up with. It was the opposite journey Pasopia wished to make. How beautiful this yellow house. How much she hated it. Cassopia rubbed away the beads of sweat above her upper lip. It was so hot, Cassopia felt her skull was being baked. She ought to have taken the shawl to protect herself. Yet despite the heat, she, dal- she dallied outside the house, sitting under a Seville orange tree. If Cassopia closed her eyes, she might smell the scent of salt. The Yucatan Peninsula, Yucamel, they were distant, isolated from everything, and yet the scent of salt was always nearby. This she loved, and she might miss in, dis- in a distant, landlocked city, although she was willing to make the trade. Finally, knowing she could not wait any longer, Cassopia went into the house crossed the interior courtyard and delivered the provisions. She saw her mother in the kitchen, her hair in a tidy bun, chopping garlic and speaking with the servants. Her mother also worked for her keep as the cook. Grandfather appreciated her culinary abilities, even if he had disappointed him in other respects. Mainly her marriage to a swarthy nobody of indigenous extraction, Their marriage produced an equally swarthy daughter, which was deemed even more regrettable. The kitchen, though busy, was a better place to spend the day. Cassopia had helped there, but when she turned 13, she had hit Martin with a stick after he insulted her father. Since then, they'd they'd had her perform meaner tasks to teach her humility. Cassopia stood in a corner and ate a plain bolillo. The crusty bread was a treat when dipped in coffee. Once Grandfather's meal was ready, Cassopia took it into his room. Grandfather Cirillo had the largest room in the house. It was crammed with heavy mahogany furniture, the floor decorated with imported tiles, the walls hand-stenciled with motives and vines and fruits. Her grandfather spent most of the day in a monstrous cast-iron bed, pillows piled high behind him. At the foot of the bed, there lay a beautiful black chest, which he never opened. It had a single decoration, an image of a decapitated man in the traditional Mayan style, his hands holding a double-headed serpent that signaled royalty. A common enough motive. Kapkal, the cutting of the throat. In the walls of old temples, the blood of the decapitated was sometimes shown spurring in the shape of snakes. The image etched on the lid, painted in red, did not depict the blood, only the spine curving and the detached head tumbling down. When she was younger, Cassopia had asked Grandfather about that singular figure. It struck her as odd since he had no interest in Mayan art, but he told her to mind her own business. She did not have a chance to ask or learn about the artifact. Grandfather kept the key to the chest on a gold chain around his neck. He took it off to bathe and go to church, since the priest was strict about forbidding any ornament during his services. Cassopia set her grandfather's supper by the window and grunting, 
He stood up and sat at the table where he had his meals every day. He complained about the salting of the dish, but did not yell. On the evenings when his aches particularly pained him, he could holler for a whole ten minutes. Do you have the paper? he asked, as he did every Friday. The two days when the rail car stopped by the town, they brought the morning daily from Merida. Yes, Cassopia said. Start reading. She read. At certain intervals, her grandfather would wave his hand at her. This was the signal that she should stop reading that story and switch to something else. Cassopia doubted her grandfather cared what she read. She thought he simply enjoyed the company, although he did not say this. When he was fed up with her reading, grandfather dismissed her. I heard you were rude to Martin today, her mother told her later. As they were getting ready for bed, they shared a room, a potted plant, a macrame plant hanger for said plant, and a cracked painting of the Virgin of Guadalupe. Her mother, who had been grandfather's most darling daughter as a child. Who said so? Your Aunt Lucinda. She wasn't there. He was rude to me first, Cassopia protested. Mother sighed. <sighs> Cassopia, you know how it is. Mother brushed Cassopia's hair. It was thick, black, straight as an arrow, and reached her wrist. During the daytime, she wore it in a braid to keep it from her face and smoothed it back with Vaseline. But at night, she let it loose, and it cloaked her, hiding her expression. Behind her curtain of hair, Cassopia frowned. I know, he is a pig, and Grandfather does nothing to curb him. Grandfather is even worse than Martin, such a mean old coot. You must not speak like that. A well-bred young woman minds her words, her mother warned her well-bred. Her aunts and her cousins were ladies and gentlemen. Her mother had been a well-bred woman. Cassopia was just a poor relation. I want to tear my hair out some days. The way they talk to me, Cassopia confessed. But it's such pretty hair, her mother said, gently setting down the hairbrush. Besides, bitterness will only poison you, not them. Cassopia bit her lower lip. She wondered how her mother ever gathered the courage to marry her father, despite her family's protestations. Although, if the nasty rumor Martin had whispered in her ear was true, the marriage had taken place because her mother had been pregnant. That, Martin declared, made her almost a bastard, daughter of a worthless pauper prince, and that was why she had hit him with a stick leaving a scar upon his brow. This humiliation he would never forgive her. This triumph she would never forget. Did you go over that reading I marked for you? Oh, mother. What does it matter if I can read or write or do sums? Cassopia asked irritably. It matters. I'm not going anywhere where it would matter. You do not know that. Your grandfather has said he'll give us 1,000 pesos each upon his passing, her mother reminded her. In Mexico City, a shop worker at a reputable store could get five pesos for a day's wages, but in the countryside, half of that. 
and less was more realistic. With 1,000 pesos, Cassopia might live in Merida for a whole year without working. I know, Cassopia said with a sigh. Even if he doesn't give us all that, I've got my savings. A peso here and a peso there. Maybe we can figure something out for you. Once you're a little older, a year or two older, perhaps we might think of Merida. An eternity, Cassopia thought. Maybe never. God sees your heart, Cassopia, her mother said, smiling at her. It is a good heart. Cassopia lowered her gaze and hoped this was not the case, for her heart was bubbling like a volcano, and there was a tight knot of resentment in her stomach. Here, give me a hug, her mother said. Cassopia obeyed, wrapping her arms around her mother like she'd done when she was a child, but the comfort she derived from this contact in her youth could not be replicated. She was upset, a perfect storm inside her body. Nothing ever changes, Cassopia told her mother. What would you like to see change? Everything, Cassopia thought. She shrugged instead. It was late, and there was no sense in rehashing the whole thing. Tomorrow, there would come the same litany of chores, her grandfather's voice ordering her to read, her cousin's taunts. The world was all grey, not a hint of colour to read. See you next time for chapter two. Thank you for listening.